It was the great Thomas Jefferson who said, the God who gave us life gave us liberty. Jefferson asked, can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Among those freedoms is the right to worship according to our own beliefs. That is why I will get rid of and totally destroy the Johnson Amendment and allow our representatives of faith to speak freely and without fear of retribution. I think facts started when it all started. It's always okay to punch a Nazi. You're telling me that I can use this phone for more than checking Facebook and Grindr on the go. Fuck you and fuck Mars. Things are the best they've ever been. So the only way to go is down. Oh, I built a straw man argument. Here's the thing though, this shit still stinks. So that's when that's when women's rights really mattered was back then. A podcast by the people, for the people, and of the people. Hello again, this is Jason. I'm Jack. And welcome to uh, episode four, quote unquote, of the Double Wars Pravda. Look, here's the thing. I think numbering these is dumb. Because uh, who knows if those first two are ever going to get released. It's kind of like that guy who did the retroactive numbering for Lincoln. Yeah. If you listen last week's episode, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Conspiracy stuff right there. Um, so... <laughs> If you this is your first time listening, A, you don't get the reference we just made, and B, we are the Devil Wears Pravda. We are the Devil Wears Pravda indeed, um, and this is, as always, a podcast uh, as a bit of a civics refresher, as well as touching on pertinent issues that are going on in uh, society, and specifically ca- U.S. society. Sure. I, I believe that in U.S. society... What is that quote from Miss, what is it, South Carolina from a few years ago? Oh, in the pageant? Yeah, it's like, Um, U.S. US nation of national borders and the education of kids is important. I believe that we should have 50 states. U.S. Americans, (laughs) I think is what she said. That's what it was. That's perfect. Um, so today we're going to be covering... So today we're already off topic. Yeah, it's a train wreck right off the bat. It was just how we like it. Um, today we're going to be covering the separation of church and state. Um, this is something that uh, I feel has probably affected all of us one way or another, whether it was in the classroom as a young kid or as stuff we're experiencing today. Um, and it's one of those things that you'll there's a lot of confusion about. Uh, you know, people have... I've read and seen articles where people talk about it like it's written into law in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, there's a lot of uh, confusion about it, and we thought it would be something fun to touch on, especially with— Yes, fun. That's the word. I have loads of fun doing this. Uh, when I'm not doing this, I watch Paint Dry, and uh, I read uh, Paradise Lost, the annotated version in Braille. So um, what uh, we decided to touch on this today because of— uh, the comments last week at the National Prayer Breakfast involving uh, the repeal of the Johnson Amendment, which a lot of people might not have any idea what it is. I know I didn't, but it seemed like something I should know. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, so that is the topic for today, and uh, I think we should just go ahead and dive right in. So, hey, let's talk about them. Okay, so 
I've got my. I guess I'll start. Okay. All right. So I kind of have like a history lesson to start with. I I've decided my portion of the podcast is just history and learning. And then you get to bring in more specific things. Welcome to Jack's History Corner. Okay. Uh, so let's go way, 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 way back. Basically all the way. Throughout history, there's so many examples of political leaders who were claiming that the rule was divine through religion. So, for example... Many kings of Judah claimed that they ruled with a mandate from the heavens. Uh, Julius Caesar was elected as the chief priest of the Roman state before he became the consul of Rome. And then even Caligula referred to himself as a god when meeting with politicians. If Caligula is a god, I am very curious to see what the devil is like. Well, I mean... uh, not good. I mean, he's the guy who held like those gigantic orgies and oh, yeah. stuff yeah, like yeah, that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was some yeah, pretty, no, great some god evil stuff. stuff. No, like <laughs> like solid god stuff. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, yeah, that's mostly what I would do if I were a god. Um, so there was a, an edict of Thessalonica, um, which made uh, Christianity or Nicene Christianity, which is like the beginnings of Christianity, uh, the st- uh, the the national religion of the Roman Empire, and uh, people were often put to death for not believing in the gods of the state. Um, so yeah, basically, history is full of people trying to rule via religion and kill because of religion. And religion is a heavy topic, and we're going to treat it with fucking no respect today. <laughs> it's like the ghost of George Carlin is possessing all of us. Yes. So. I will say that even though as far back as the ruling via religion goes, there have been people that have not been in support of it. Um, so there was this philosophy called Epicureanism, uh, which was the ba- based on the teachings of the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus. Uh, that makes sense. So this uh, philosophy was founded around 307 BC. Uh, so it goes back. Uh, And basically, it argues that pleasure was the greatest good, and to attain it, you must live modestly, gain knowledge of the workings of the world, and limit your desires. Wait, limit limit our desires to achieve pleasure? Just be like, I don't want for anything. I'm just going to chill. It's actually technically a form of hedonism, but no one would really see it as hedonism. Okay. Because they kind of say, like, don't lust for things like just whatever sure um so this would lead us to a state of tranquility and freedom from fear and an absence of bodily pain um so along with that main philosophy epicureanism emphasized the neutrality of the gods uh which stated that they do not interfere with human lives um basically because they argued that the gods had reached this state of tranquility and had no desire to meddle. Makes sense. Um, and what what race did you say it was? He was Greek? Yeah. Okay. Um, so basically, they said that man ha- has free will and that all thoughts are randomly swerving atoms, which is an interesting thing. 
And so says, basically it was saying gods couldn't appoint a leader because they didn't give a shit and they didn't interfere. Interesting. Um, and then furthermore, because people have free will, they shouldn't be made to worship one religion uh, to participate in government. That, it wasn't written out specifically. Um, I almost got lost in Epicureanism <laughs> because it was so interesting yeah. and deep. Um, and I really wanted to just make that my religion now. Okay. Um, so I, I kind of had, stopping you from I kinda that, you had to extrapolate the ideas um, of government from kind of the ideas of it. But basically the whole thing is like gods wouldn't participate in government because they, they don't care. Do. And God, the gods of Epicureanism are, as seen through Epicureanism weren't really gods. They were just these people that had reached this enlightened state. And so any suffering wasn't caused by or fixed by the gods because they didn't care. It was all humans who were because they gave a shit that seems entirely plausible i mean it's a stoner religion it, it really is um so yeah i almost got way too deep into this and so i was like pull up pull up so now we're gonna talk about john locke okay um he was an english philosopher and not the guy from lost though right no. we're talking about the philosopher no. okay yeah he was an english philosopher and hair icon i saw a couple pictures <laughs> yeah. of him and i was like yeah he was breaking barriers it. huh uh, was he a powdered wig guy or was this like... It was powdered wig, but like fucking down to the like waist. Yeah. Just uh, magical. Powdered wigs. I feel like powdered wigs have distorted the perception of so many people throughout history. It's like they had real hair under there, guys. That's, yeah. that's yeah. wigs. However, what a great, great way to combat baldness. I mean, right? no one would ever know. It's like, hey, you know, he's got no hair under there. It's like, shut up, Tom. Shut, shut up, Tom. Shut, you don't need to know. Shut up, Tom. I, I love what it looks like now. Tom, of course, me and Tom Jefferson in this one. Of I course. <laughs> of course. Um, so according to John Locke's principle of the social contract, he argued that the government lacked authority in the realm of individual conscience, uh, as this was something rational people could not cede to the government for it or others to control. Basically saying you can believe what you want to believe. The government has no authority to tell you otherwise. Sure. So, and then at the same time, and this is around, like, the 17th century, okay. there's this dude named Pierre Bale, and he was running around saying that faith was independent of reason. Okay. Um, so then, in the 18th century, the ideas of Locke and uh, Bale were gaining traction. Okay. And philosophers during this age, which was actually referred to as the Age of Enlightenment, were starting to promote the shit out of this idea. <laughs> Um, a guy named Montesquieu wrote in 1721 about religious tolerance and a degree of separation between religion and government. And then Denis Diderot became my new favorite person in history by saying the distance between the throne and the altar can never be too great. I like that. So these two guys were kind of guys that were distilling the ideas of Locke and Bale and kind of applying them to government. And then these ideas are kind of circulating around this time and they became very influential to the american colonies and the drafting of the constitution absolutely i know that uh a lot of there there was a lot of influence from uh, french philosophers as well as the idea of natural law um things like that which uh aren't aren't necessarily biblical in sense um more or less just kind of the idea that there's a uh 
a natural order that rules uh, our world and uh, adherence to that is a great example of how to set up a government or to try right. to help life flourish. Right. Yes, I agree. I'm going to move on. <laughs> so basically... Back to Jack's history corner. Yeah, ba- back to Jack's history corner. Um, so basically, these ideas really influenced the writing of the Constitution and then, consequently, the Bill of Rights and the first few amendments specifically right now focus we're focusing on the first amendment um which says that government should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof so what does that mean uh and what did it mean to the founders so the constitutional convention believed a government established religion would disrupt rather than bind the newly formed union so they're like nope y'all worship whatever we're not gonna make oh because a lot of the people that were there had left religious prosecution so it would just be a whole thing um and actually washington wrote a letter in 1790 uh to the country's first jewish congregation okay and i believe they were somewhere in connecticut i didn't write that down i should have but basically, he said, actually, not basically, this is just an exact quote, allowing <laughs> rights and immunities of citizenship. It is now no more than toleration is spoken of, as if it were by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. So basically he was just applauding the people of the U.S. for rejecting the European practice of religious toleration uh, and instead embracing the enlarged and liberal policy that religious liberty is a natural right, like you were saying, and not a gift of the government. And which all citizens are equally free to exercise. Absolutely. Um, so bringing that down to layman terms, it means that George Washington is very disappointed in a lot of you. A lot of you people. So many of you. <laughs> if George Washington were alive today, and he, he would go to a dentist and then get take to Facebook and say how disappointed he is. You would. And how great orthodontics are. God, he would be so blown away by even just like veneers i mean why is it so hard for presidents to have teeth or coats our best presidents are dying without teeth or coats it's terrible someone get these men some coats 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 and teeth for presidents coats and tooth powder for all okay so and then going over coats and teeth for president yeah i'd vote for him him. okay coats and teeth uh anyway we'll go over to jefferson now so to him, uh, the First Amendment, basically, he felt that it prevented the establishment of a national church, and in so doing, churches uh, did not have to fear government interference and their right to expressions of religious conscience. Um, so he actually wrote a letter to the Danbury Baptist Association, um, and that's actually kind of where the idea of American, the actual term separation of church and state kind of comes from so he wrote believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his god 
that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence the act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So, uh, you don't have to do that now. I'm gonna go edit in. I'll just say I hope you have that behind the entire speech. I'm going to. Yeah, if you any time a president speaks in the in me in what I'm saying, it's gonna be or whatever. Like, because that's why. Why would it be the? I guess it's the president. That's hailed of the chief, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually I have uh, right here my favorite. Uh, that's American the Beautiful, I think. It is. Um, I have here actually my favorite William Henry Harrison quote is. Uh... <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. Can you put the music behind that too? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> now, um, I, I, this is like high level overview of it, but um, when they're talking about national church and like it's getting from away from persecution and things like that, wasn't it the Church of England was established because? The Catholic Church wouldn't grant the king an pretty abortion, much. pretty much, and he wanted to have a, a well, male son, right? Ab- or no, he wanted divorce, he, he wanted a divorce, because his wife couldn't give him a male heir. Henry the Eighth. That's right. That's who it was. Yeah, the Church of England. I think there are still people that practice that. It's basically like Catholicism light. Basically, yeah, basically, which is what all Catholics are these days. Let's not fool ourselves. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I've run into so many people who used to be Catholic. Yeah. And now they're alcoholics. I think that's, that's the transition. That's the evolution is you get baptized and then you're a Catholic and then you evolve into your highest form, which, which is, is alcohol. Just alcoholism. Alcoholism. Alcoholic. <laughs> uh, so basically the First Amendment protects us from the establishment of a national religion, um, which basically just means we'll never be run by like the Pope. And can't Never. all be compelled to be Catholic, and that was a, uh, which a big... is a real thing people were afraid of when JFK ran. Yeah, and uh, you were gonna say that, I but was. I already had it written the fuck down. Yeah, I mean, you have thought of everything. That's why this is your history corner, and I just need to be put in the actual corner. But nobody puts baby in the corner. Are you gonna let me continue? I guess. Um, so actually, we're. We're getting a little bit into court cases, but there's a couple other paragraphs. Um, so there were three central concepts derived from the First Amendment, which became America's doctrine for church-state separation. Um, there's to be no coercion in religious matters. There's no expectation to support a religion against one's will. And religious liberty encompasses all religions. Um so basically citizens are free to embrace or reject a faith any support for religion financial or physical must be voluntary and all religions are equal in the eyes of the law with no special preference or favoritism which i think is very important to note i agree um and i think also like the religious liberty encompasses all religions i mean the thing about i wanted to see what it would how it referred would refer to atheism but really atheism is only affected by not having to be forced to like be part of a religion because there's no there's no pillars of 
atheism right it's it's one of those things that makes it hard for people to contend that something like the pledge of allegiance or the uh star spangled banner or something like do they say under god in that no it's just the pledge of allegiance to say that it it infringes on your religious freedom uh as an atheist it gets kind of muddy because like you said there's not really any kind of uh but it is forcing you to say something that you don't believe in sure but does the question is does that fall underneath a burden upon your religion if your religion is to not right. have a religion well it's also individual liberty as well as it's like if i am lactose intolerant and then i get mad at someone for eating ice cream because i can't eat ice cream it's just silly yeah but they're not forcing you to eat ice cream you don't know that i had a weird summer <laughs> um so a lot of people and this is one of the things i kind of found and I've seen in real life go out of their freaking way whenever you're like having a conversation about this thing to be like yeah but the first amendment doesn't actually say the word separation of church and state Truth bomb. which I was one of those people in like eighth grade yeah um when I was really into my Catholicism um so basically like well it doesn't actually say it so your fucking arguments invalid go away <laughs> uh but that's not really true. Um, technically, in the sp- in the specific sense of the First Amendment, yeah, it doesn't say separation of church and state. However, there have been court cases that have interpreted the meaning of the First Amendment to mean a separation of church and state. Absolutely, and I think I think one thing that you'll see as well, and it's something that the founding fathers touched upon a lot. Uh, especially with the colonies being set up how they were, where a lot of them kind of separated themselves out into factions and, and specific areas where they felt like they could best practice, is that a lot of religion stuff is, uh, religious law is um, in state laws as opposed to federal law. And I mean, you can still yeah. see some of that stuff today. Like in Utah, um, because it is a Mormon state, you cannot buy beer over 3.2 uh, ABV unless it is. Um, from a state-run liquor store. Uh, likewise, you can't buy beer on Sundays on Atlanta, in Atlanta. On Atlanta. On Atlanta. You can't go on the TV show Atlanta and <laughs> buy beer on Sunday. Um, in 1826, blasphemy was forbidden in the state of Delaware, and uh, office holders in Pennsylvania had to swear that they believed in the being of a god and a future state of rewards and punishments. So the states, I mean, some of these state right. constitutions there's a stuff, lot it's still of, mandated. There's a lot of laws and a lot of court cases that have gone up against the state versus the federal government. Right, right. Uh, in, what am I trying to say? In regards to sure. religious And that aspects. sets a really fascinating precedent because in a lot of ways the federal power exists to help, you know, give out power to the states more or less and and to see them clash against one another can be really interesting in the way it's mandated right um so let's talk about some of these court cases okay Um, Uh, i know you looked up some i looked up some there's some we have overlapping some only you have well you said you see you have everson right yes that's actually the one i was gonna start with yeah let's start was uh everson v board of education let's talk about it it's my thing stop it um there, are, so it's 1947. There was a New Jersey taxpayer who uh, was upset that tax-funded school districts that the a tax-funded school district provided reimbursement to parents of both public and private school kids. 
Uh, basically, they contended that reimbursement given for children attending private religious schools violated the constitutional prohi- prohibition against state support of religion. Um, so, I did a very broad <laughs> overview uh, summary of the case. That's just kind of what that was. That's right. what the main argument was. There were t- two kind of things that ended up being decided. The first um, thing the justices were actually split over was whether the policy constituted a support of religion. Sure. Um, but the majority did conclude that the reimbursements were separate and so indisputably marked off from the religious function um, that they didn't violate the Constitution. So the, 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 the reimbursement stood. Sure. Um, however, they were all in agreement that um, the Constitution required a sharp separation between government and religion. Um, so actually, both the dissenting and concurring remarks had something to this effect, but this is the one from, I think he was a concurring justice, Hugo Black. He wrote, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, the clause against establishment of religion by law was intended to erect a wall of separation between church and state. So they actually read into the first co- first amendment and said, "No, yeah, that's what they meant was a separation of church and state." They uh I think the the full quote which I think is it's bears weight was uh that the first amendment has erected a wall between church and straight state. That wall must be kept high and impregnable. We cannot approve the slightest be- breach. So you see these laws uh these these rulings that are kind of establishing the precedent that gets brought into uh, the forefront when these cases reoccur. Um, and uh, the next case, I said, you said that you didn't have this one, I don't think so, uh, but you do have Lemon and Kurtzman, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so we'll just go in numerical order because this one was 1968. So this was uh, Epperson versus Arkansas, and uh, in it, the Supreme Court considered an Arkansas law that made it a crime to teach the theory or doctrine that mankind ascended or descended from a lower order of animals. So it's one of the first ones we see about of creationism kind of evolution. versus evolution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did see this when I didn't write anything about it. Uh, this has always been one that uh, fascinates me because um, it's one of those where you're seeing, uh, you know, kind of religion and theocracy go up against science in education, which um, I, I'm all for. I think when you're in school, you should learn as much as you possibly could, and if that covers both things that are biblical and not, that's fine. But I think both sides need to be presented. I would say. I mean, I disagree. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I don't mean so much. Like, what about like religion studies? Like, if you did a course in social studies where you learn about Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, things See, like that. So, and well, I guess we'll get to it. I mean, this was specifically saying they were arguing against the idea that evolution should be taught versus creationism, which is Genesis, is the, the base of the story of the Bible. I think the difference, for me, the difference is that, and it's going to sound, I'm going to sound so dicky for saying it. <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, but discourse is allowed here. Right. The evolution has been studied there's scientific theories behind it there's multiple people backing it up sure uh there's bones the uh, the creationism first of all is a very christianity centered creationism absolutely so if you're going to teach that creationism you need to 
teach Hindu creationism, like all of the myths of creationism. Sure. And I think that opens a door for a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. And secondly, it's based on one story in a book. Yeah. No, I mean, I understand. That doesn't have any real... And then if you're going to teach it, do you say that? Of like, well, here's where we get the theory of evolution from. Sources, 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 source, source. Here's where we get creationism. One source that's pretty fallible. You know, actually, you, you bring that up. It reminds me of something. And I'm, I'm curious if you remember this or not. Um, quick side tangent that is related. Jack and I know each other because we went to Catholic school together briefly in 7th and 8th grade. And I specifically remember one day in our religion class, a student being brought to tears because he was arguing with the teacher about evolution versus creationism. And she would not... I mean, I think she knew, but she, under the, the district's curriculum, she couldn't really adhere to that. Uh, he was he was furious because he was a really brainy kid and really into science, and he was like, no, this is real. I mean, these are, there's facts backing this up, and she wouldn't even entertain a discussion about it, which right. I remember being kind of an interesting moment because uh, I think that's where you're seeing that divide. But, I mean, also that was a Catholic school versus Catholic a public school. school so. And, yeah, I mean— by virtue of being a Catholic school, the state couldn't come in exactly. and say, no, I mean, I'm not you saying, have to teach this. I, I'm not saying it was a little entertain like that, but I remember it just being a really interesting kind of moment in my educational right. career of seeing that divide. Um, so uh, the, the state uh, also made it a crime to adopt or use in any such institution a textbook that teaches this theory in any school or university that received public funds. Um, and the court's opinion ruled that the Arkansas law violated the constitutional pre- constitutional prohibition of state laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof so it was one of those things that you kind of saw got striked down from a state level um and the court held that the establishment cause prohibits the state from advancing any religion and that the state has right. no legitimate interest in protecting any or all religions from views distasteful to so them. that's going back to kind of i guess what i was saying i think because you were you're saying like well teach them side by side as whatever theories but if you're going if you pick just one creation theory you are establishing or you are what is it promoting a religion in a state school so so you're it, saying you'd either have to teach every single creation every theory. single creation theory sure or None of them, and stick to, I guess, the science-approved one. Absolutely. Which is evolution. But to me, evolution has, you know, more of a basis in fossil records and and stuff like that. I would definitely agree with that. I mean, it's definitely more scientifically sound and therefore more academically pertinent than speaking about teaching about something, you know, we wouldn't you wouldn't expect to go into a science class and hear them talking about Noah bringing animals up two by two into an ark. Right. I Um, think it's fully okay to bring the up creation uh, theories in history classes or religion studies. No, I I agree. I mean, if you're seeking that information out as, 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 uh, yeah, as a way of like expanding your horizons, but in a way that it's not pushing one specific, religion on you yes because i think i think one of the major arguments that is had in that creation versus evolution thing is 
you only hear one group arguing for their creation myth to be taught in public schools. That is fair. That's a good point. You only hear one group arguing for it. Um, And to me, that's less present all the facts or present all the sides than we want to we want to have our hand in how public school teaches exactly and no i i get what you're saying and i think as uh as a podcast that exists solely to support the facts we can all agree that the fossil records are facts right and you know when you're in school you're in school to learn and you're not gonna become a brain surgeon by being taught the bible right um so uh what's the next court case you have let's go with lemon versus kurtzman cool do you want me to cover that one? Yeah, man, knock it out. So this is 1971. Um, so this one is actually, it actually further defined uh, kind of the separation of church and state. Um, so there was an act in Pennsylvania. Do you have what it was called? Uh, I have, I don't have that. Well, it was some act about, I don't know, superintendent. Some, oh, I'm sorry. The, uh, it's the Non-Public Elementary and Second Education Act. Yeah. So it allowed the superintendent of, of, of public schools to reimburse private, mostly Catholic, schools for the salaries of teachers who taught in those private schools using public textbooks and public instructional materials. Um, so the court argued about it for a while, and they heard arguments, as courts are wont to do. Sure. Uh, and they decided that this was unconstitutional. And why is that, Jack? Uh, I don't know, but I did come. I did say that they came up with a test called the Lemon Test. Sure. Um, you know, real quick side note, I wanted to bring up just looking at this. I noticed that, uh, well, at least in that one, um, I mean, the decision in that case was eight to one. It seems like yeah. a lot of these are pretty Which, steadfast. I actually read. For some reason, the article I was reading about it is Wikipedia. I pretty much leaned heavily on Wikipedia today. Normally, I'll go to other sources today. It's like, I'm going to stay on Wikipedia. Well, you are wearing a nice cardigan, so I think that you're fine. You know, you get all your information from Wikipedia, but you wear a nice shirt. It's okay. Uh, I'm trying to see if there, if I can find that case. Oh, well. Um I mean, it's, it sounds remarkably similar to the, the first case in New Jersey that was kind of talking about the appropriation of taxpayer funds and uh, where that money should be going to. Right. Um, basically, they said that reimbursing the salaries and related costs of teachers of secular subjects in private religious schools violated the Establishment's Clause. Um, they argue that the separation of church and state could never be absolute, though, which was interesting. Yeah, no, I did get that. Um, it said our prior holdings do not call for total separation between church and state. Total separation is not possible in an absolute sense. Some relationship between government and religious organizations is inevitable. Uh, the court wrote judicial caveats against entanglement must recognize the line of separation far from being a wall is a blurred, indistinct, and variable barrier depending on all the circumstances of a particular relationship. So they were saying uh, there's gray area. Whereas the first guy was like, it is a wall, it is high and impenetrable. This one was like, it's a gray area. <laughs> there's some holes in this wall. There's a, there's a there's a 
parts of the wall are chain link. Like <laughs> some of it's just one of those invisibility fences for dogs. But so in order to kind of make it still easy ish to come up with rulings in the future, they established the lemon test. Yes. Which details the requirements for legislation concerning concerning religion. There's three prongs. There's the purpose prong, which states that the statute must have a secular legislative purpose. There's the effect prong, uh, which states that the principal or primary effect of the statute must not advance nor inhibit any religion. And then there's the entanglement prong, which states that the statute must not result in an excessive excessive government entanglement with religion. Sounds like you had some excessive tongue entanglement there. Um, so this was a this was a test that was established, uh, and it basically went on to say if any of these prongs are violated, the government's action is deemed unconstitutional under the establishment clause. So basically, it was a way to kind of define. Did you just say that? <laughs> I need you to know that we went to the same source and we copied and pasted. I was reading along with you earlier. <laughs> Like, just mouthing the words. I was like, for the salaries of teachers who taught in these private schools. Um, I get a 30-minute lunch break. What do you want from me? Uh, I have all day. I'm just lazy. <laughs> um, so, uh, it, but in doing this, it, it's important because in, in an effort, basically, as things became more progressive throughout society, there were going to be more instances like this where people, you know, were finding and claiming things under the... Uh, separation of church and state so they started to develop these tests more or less that were effective ways right. to be able to decide whether or not it was right. you know it was protocol more or less mm-hmm. um, um i did want to say to um what jack what what do you want to say for lemon versus kurtzman uh the court found that the parochial school system was an integral part of the religious mission of the catholic church and they held that the act fostered excessive entanglement between government and religion. So they were like, well, we've come up with this test and you failed one of the prongs. So, nope. Um, yeah, and I mean, so also, this is not the only case that established some sort of test uh, in an effort to help us uh, further identify when there might be issues with um, uh, the separation of church and the state. This one also was a really heavy-handed decision in favor um, and after I read it to you, I'm, I'd like to award you some points if you can guess what the total count was of what to what. So, this was uh, Sherbert versus Werner. And By the way, we just had lemon, now we have Sherbert. Ooh, it's a nice palate cleanser, isn't it? Um, lemon Sherbert. So this is Adele Sherbert. She says hello from the other side. Uh, this is, uh, he was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. God damn it. <laughs> Um, you can't say that during a separation of church and state episode. I can because, uh, it's excessive entanglement, Jack. It's excessive entanglement. Yeah. I want my fist to get excessively entangled with your face. I'm not a Nazi. Um, so, uh, Adele Sherbert was a member of the seventh day Adventist church and worked as a textile mill operator. Two years after her conversion to that faith, her employer switched from a five day to a six day work week, including Saturdays. Um, and according to her belief, uh, in Exodus 28, uh, verse 8, 11, uh, it forbade working on Saturdays, and she refused to work that day right. and was fired. Um, Did she work on Sundays, too? 
Uh, I th- it was a six day work week, so I'm assuming they still had Sundays off. She right. worked Monday through Saturday. Right, but like, would she have been okay? I don't, I don't. Know. I'm not sure. I don't know if or seven. I don't know if Seven Day Adventists just hold because Saturday they, holy. Yeah, because the seventh day for them, whenever they said God rest on the seventh. Oh, Sunday day was is, the first day. It was Saturday. I don't know how it became Sunday for. I don't. That's another podcast. I'm not doing a whole podcast on Saturday and Sunday, unless I'm doing it on a saturday or sunday uh so she refused to work that day and was fired sherbert could not find any other work and applied for unemployment compensation and her claim was denied so it went to the courts um and they ended up setting out a test after the supreme court in a blank to blank decision uh seven to two nailed it Seven to two. That's worth. Uh, I didn't even look that up. Seven minus two carry the one. That's worth five points. So, um, the Supreme Court. In <laughs> wait, a, wait. Well, There's a point system on this podcast now. Yeah, you gave me some points in the first episode to feel good about myself, and they still haven't worked. I still feel terrible about myself, but yeah. um, you know, get five. So yeah, I mean, what did I give you? Uh, I don't think you gave me a total. Oh wait, no, I, it was based off of. Uh, um, I think I got three out of eight or something. Right, I did terrible. You did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, remember, you shouldn't feel good about yourself. I shouldn't. You know, it's like when I take that last shot and they say you're gonna hate yourself tomorrow. I say, jokes on you. I hate myself already. Um, so, uh, um, the the decision basically reversed the commission. Uh, the, it was the case was against the employment security commission as opposed to her employer right. specifically. Um, that her uh workers comp claim or her uh, unemployment claim was denied so um the reverse the commission and the lower okay okay so she sued the people who would give her the workmen's the unemployment they she sued because they they didn't give it to her because like no they said it uh, her claim was denied uh even though the state's ineligibility provisions exempted anyone whether religious or not for good cause so that was what she was arguing right um so they reversed the commission in the lower court's decision, finding that, as applied, the government's denial of Sherbert's claim was an unconstitutional burden on the free exercise of her religion. The majority opinion effectively created the Sherbert test, determining whether government action runs afoul of the free exercise clause. I like that word, afoul. I'm going to start using that more. Um, so here's the Sherbert test. Uh, it was another three... three Does it taste good? <laughs> Is it nice and smooth? What's Sherbert? It's uh, citrus-flavored ice cream. Yeah. Is, is it, it nice and creamy? Oh, my God. I'm going to have to ask Siri later. Um, in Sherbert, the court set out three-pronged tests for courts to use in determining whether the government has violated an individual's constitutionally protected right to the free exercise of religion. Prong number one. The first prong investigates whether government has burdened the individual's free exercise of religion. If government confronts an individual with a choice that pressures the individual to forego a religious practice, whether by imposing a penalty or withholding a benefit, then the government has burdened the individual's free exercise of religion. Seems fair. Uh, However, under this test, not all burdens placed on religious exercise are constitutionally prohibited. If the first prong is passed, the government may still constitutionally impose the burden on the individual's free exercise if the government can show that A, it possesses some compelling state interest that justifies the infringement, and B, no alternative form of regulation can avoid the infringement and still achieve the state's end. And that's called the narrow tailoring prong. Um, and it appears that I did not copy and paste the third prong, so I really blew that one. Uh, I, I feel like I should lose my other three points. Um, <laughs> Hold um, on. 
Jack's gonna Google that. Um, when the uh, and sidebar, when the Louisiana State Legislature passed a law requiring public school biology teachers to give creationism and evolution equal time in the classroom, the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional because it was intended to advance particular religion and did not serve the secular purpose of improved scientific education. So that's basically the point that you stated earlier. Right. So I had one more too, but yeah. let me get these uh, three prongs here. Yes. Oh no, it's only two prong. Oh really? Yeah. The so thing, you didn't. That's weird. Fine. The thing I said it said. It was oh yeah, a, it does say a three prong test. A three prong test, but there's only uh, two. I think it's the third th- one th- must be the ice cream part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it between one or two percent uh, milk fat? <laughs> does that burden the state? I think I think it, so. It has one and two, but then two has two bullet points. I think that might be. Yeah, absolutely. It. Anyway, um, so I had one more kind of short thing. Yeah, go for it. That was interesting to me. Um, there, so Article Six of the Constitution actually provides that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Um, so prior to the adoption of the Bill of Rights. This was actually the only mention of religion in the Constitution. Really? You can't have a religious test to be a part of the government. Which sounds super fair. Right. Um, I've got another court case called Ingle v. Vitale. Okay. uh, This was 1962. Um, The Supreme Court deemed it unconstitutional for state officials to compose an official school prayer and require its recitation at public schools even when the prayer is non-denominational and students may excuse themselves from participation. Um, so basically in this one, the court stated that the petitioners contend, among other things, that the state laws requiring or permitting use of the regent's prayer, the regent's prayer was the prayer that they made up for these students to pray, yeah, uh, must be struck down as a violation of the Establishments Clause because that prayer was composed by governmental officials as a part of a governmental program to further religious beliefs. It actually, I've looked it up earlier. It literally said like, Oh God, please help us. Like what? Yeah. Like, like it was, grumble, it was grumble. specifically for like the Christian God. Like it's not just like, it's non-denomination. It's not. Um, we agree with that contention since we think that the constitutional prohibition against laws respecting an establishment of religion must at least mean that in this country it is no part of the business of government to compose official prayers for any group of the American people to recite as a part of the religious program carried on by government. Which is an interesting piece. I agree. And um, I actually really... I, I was, there's so many things that I didn't write down that I just saw that were interesting and they're all... F- I forgot all of them. Yeah. No, I mean... I Because think- um, there was a difference kind of between Madison and Jefferson it, and, and insofar as church versus state. Um, like, Je- uh, Jefferson wouldn't even um, establish a day of Thanksgiving. Yeah. He was asked to a bunch, and he's like, eh, it gets a little too close to religion. Yeah, I have I have here that he wrote a version of the New... Thomas Jefferson wrote a version of the New Testament that removed references to Jesus' divinity. Um, so he was certainly not the most religious guy. Uh, ben Franklin was a deist, and George Washington may not have taken communion. Um, but it also might have been because the wafers are really hard and, you know, the wooden teeth. So... Um, but yeah, I mean the the founding fathers were in themselves. But like not Madison, the most... Madison actually wrote a couple of like, um, I don't want to say it's national prayers, but I for, I forget how they referred to it. But like he actually gave a couple of like 
speeches that directly invoked God and, sure. and stuff like that. Whereas Jefferson would never have done that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, and uh, you know, and it's just an interesting thing to see between presidents. Yeah, it's a difference between presidents. With, I mean, some of that stuff being established so early on, it's, um, I think there was a lot of growth room, and they were, you know, it's, I think that they did lay an excellent foundation. Um, and the Supreme Court has had uh, a lot, a lot of influence in deciding how that is mandated um, in our current society, which mm-hmm. is uh, another, you know, a really interesting way that you see checks and balances come into play. And speaking of our current society, I have one from 2002 uh, court case. Um, it was a three judge panel on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Okay. Um, they actually held that classroom recitation of the pledge of allegiance in california public school uh was unconstitutional even when students were not compelled to recite it due to the inclusion of the phrase under god um it actually did make its way up to the supreme court but the supreme court actually overturned the decision um on june 2004 but not uh due to any like legal precedent uh, it was procedural grounds. They they basically said you can't bring this case before a court because um, it was a non. I think it was like a non guardian parent of, okay. of a yeah, chi- of one right. of the child yeah I of one of, of the child that was he didn't have justification to be right so he wasn't allowed to bring a case for his daughter because he wasn't a guardian of her uh, so there was no there was he didn't have the right to be there in the first place and so it was a witch hunt. The whole um, case was just thrown out, and um, they said, "Yeah, well, you, well, you we can't uphold the uh, circuit court's uh, ruling of it being unconstitutional because the whole case has to be thrown out and retried um, by someone who actually is her guardian." Sure. Um, so, uh, I, how how are we doing on time? Because I, I want to touch on the Burwell. We've got thing. like ten minutes left. Okay. Um, so I, I'm going to do a really quick overview on this, but if, if you, any of these cases, if you were to look into any of them, I would implore you to check out this one, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, because I think it was one of the most landmark decisions in the, uh, separation of church and state and overall just a really interesting case as well. Jack, this one had a much, much narrower victory. If you want to guess on what that was in the vote. Five to four. Five to four is exactly right. Uh, so minus one, you have six points now. So um, this was a decision, uh, and it, it was recent, 2014. So some of you might know about it already. It was um, regarding Hobby Lobby and the uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And it basically was, um, to break it down, the ACA mandated that, uh, a contraceptive mandate basically within their health insurance plan. And there right. were four Any kinds. health insurance plan through. Uh, it's like 50 or more employees if it's federally funded right you have to be able to you have to provide birth control right so um there were uh hobby lobby is a closely held corporation by a family um they spent they've donated over like 500 million dollars to evangelical services over the years they're they're a very religious family they claimed that uh because they believe that life begins at conception and a couple of the birth controls if Affected implantation of the egg into the wall of the uterus that it was effectively abortion pills and that they did not they felt it was a burden on their religious freedom to have to provide this for their employees and i mean hobby lobby is a, a pretty big company i mean right you know, they're that's, national so it was a five to four decision in favor of hobby lobby 
and um, it was you know it was a pretty interesting. There was a lot of fallout. Um, uh, conservative and pro-life groups praised the ruling. They said that um, it was a great victory for religious liberty, the bedrock of our founding, and living out our religious convictions. There are certain things we must do. This is why we are at a watershed moment. Religious people will no longer be ordered to take actions that our religions say we must not take. Um, and on the inverse, pro-choice and civil life or civil liberty groups were upset. Um, uh, Cecile Richards, president of Planned Parenthood Action Fund, said. Today's Supreme Court ruled against American women and families, giving bosses the right to discriminate against women and deny their employees access to birth control coverage. So it was a, a really hotly contested uh, right. uh, ordeal. And I wanted to read just a brief excerpt from uh, the, the, uh, the accepting opinion and the dissenting opinions. Um, so the—why uh, the, can't I not think of the word for— um, Consenting? Consenting, that's right. Sorry. Um, so the consenting opinion said that allowing Hobby Who wrote it? Was it Scalia? It wasn't Scalia, but Scalia was on the was court. Was it Roberts? Uh, it was... Oh, I wrote it down. Uh, I didn't write it down. Um, I know I know. Ruth Bader Ginsburg did the dissenting. Dissenting, yeah. Because um, RBG's my <coughs> homegirl. Yeah. Um, so he said that in allowing Hobby Lobby, Conestoga, and Mardell to assert uh, RFRA claims protects the religious liberty of the Greens and the Hans. Um, for-profit corporations with ownership approvals support a wide variety of charitable causes, and it is not at all uncommon for such corporations to further humanitarian and other altruistic objectives. The court rejected the contention that the nation lacks a tradition for exempting for-profit corporations from generally applicable laws. So this is why it was such a big deal, because companies that are nonprofit, that are religious-oriented, can opt out of certain mandates because they don't receive federal funding or tax breaks in that regard. Um, and they re, the, the court basically held that uh, the human health services um, burdened the exercise of religion that the $2,000 per employee penalty for dropping insurance coverage was less than the average cost of health insurance. So it was the first time that we've ever seen a for-profit corporation given religious freedom, which was a really interesting precedent. Um, and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in her primary dissent, said— uh, in a decision of startling breath, the court holds that commercial enterprises, including corporations, along with partnerships and sole proprietorships, can opt out of any law, saving only tax laws they judge incompatible with sincerely held religious beliefs. Um, and she said, until this litigation, no decision of this court recognized a for-profits corporation's qualifications for religious exemption. And she brings up an interesting point at the end, and she said, the court, I fear, has ventured into a minefield. Would the exemption extend to employers with religiously grounded objections to blood transfusions, like Jehovah's Witnesses, antidepressants, like Scientologists, medications derived from pigs, including anesthesia, intravenous fluids, and pills coated with gelatin, which is certain Muslim, Jewish, and Hindu religions, and vaccinations? Um, so basically, it, she was worried it created a huge black hole for the lower courts in dealing with these things and granting corporate entities um, religious freedom. So... Uh, there's there's so much more there, but I would say to definitely look into it and check it out. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really interesting decision, and there's already been some contention in the lower courts regarding it's it. It's a it's an interesting minefield, that, like she said, of what because I do like I'm a hundred percent on board for like the uh, freedom to exercise religion as a person, as a person, and and there shouldn't be a religion established as the national religion like i'm all on board for that because i think that allows a freedom of religion 
and freedom from religion. Exactly. And uh, and, and I think it I I don't think it puts religion over personal for personal freedoms. And in corporations like that that are for profit, it's so it's not like it's a family business where all the people working there share the same right. religion or ideologies. Right. So some could argue that it was a burden on their religion to not be granted access. However, um, the, the stipulation they did make was that it was closely held corporations, which are corporations that are owned by five people or less and typically within a family. But it's still open not publicly traded. Is it's it? not. Okay. Which is, which I mean, there are, you know, I don't want to present this like, we're all going to die because corporations have religious freedom now. That's not what I'm getting at, but it sets precedent. And those precedents, when they get set, lead to more court cases. And there's already been a few. I, I didn't write them all down because it would have taken forever, but there have been some lower level courts dealing with issues that this precedent has set already that are tough decisions. I mean, you really have to figure out if a corporation meets the criteria to have religious freedom right which is like where the difference between your personal freedoms uh and your and where a where a religious freedom tramples on your personal freedom or vice versa what has the upper hand i guess right exactly um like going to a little bit uh we talked we were we said we were going to talk about it and we don't have a ton of time. I really want to. I honestly. I mean, we, we need to touch on it. At would least. rather get to the Johnson Amendment. I was gonna touch on the Re- Religious Freedom Restoration Act. How, I mean, can you do like a minute or two high level overview of it? Well, in general, basically, it was a decision or it was an act that uh, in 1993. Yeah, um, it ensured that interests in religious freedoms are protected. Yeah, overall. Um, a lot of it actually came from a. It reinstated the Sherbert test, and it actually kind of came from um, the most pertinent religion it uh, attached itself to was Native American religions. Um, Interesting. That are bur- that were burdened by increasing expansion of government projects onto sacred land. Um, so basically, in most Native American religions, the land they worship on is important because it, it hold they hold special significance they're historically or they're spiritually significant with them yeah i mean a lot of it's to them. based i would think um so the first amendment says that the congress shall pass no laws prohibiting the free ex- exercise of religion um which we've been talking about like all day um <laughs> so in there there was a court case um in 1990 called Lying Ling versus Northwest Indian Cemetery Protective Association. Um, basically, in that one, the court was unfavorable to sacred land rights. Um, they, The members of the Yurok, Talawa, and Karak tribes tried to use the First Amendment um, to prevent a road from being built by the U.S. Forest Service through sacred land. They basically argued that uh, that road would go through gathering sites for natural resources using ceremonies and praying. Uh, however, the Supreme Court actually ruled that this was not an adequate legal burden uh, because the government was not coercing or punishing them for the religious beliefs. Interesting. Um, however, to me, it did put a big burden on their ability to practice their religion. I would think so, yeah. I, so it's a little weird for me. That's, it seems um, weird to hear about Native Americans not getting a fair shake. I know. Like, there's such... There, there's just such a long history of Native Americans being treated fairly and equally in the eyes of the law in the United States that it's weird to hear about a time when they, ha- they weren't. 
Yeah, it's it's you know it's it seems fairly unprecedented to me at least. <laughs> um, so yeah, basically, and then there there was another one where it was a I I believe a woman was fired because she had um a drug in her system that came from smoking peyote as part of a Native American um religious ceremony. Hold on, let me write that down for my next employee drug test. Native American ceremony. Got it. Um however basically it uh so the Supreme Court this was 2006 actually. They were this is all using the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Okay. These these specific cases kind of go to that. Um they so the constitutionality of the RFRA was as applied to the federal government was confirmed on February 21st, 2006, as the Supreme Court ruled against the government in Gonzalez v. Ocentra Espirita, but what, I don't even know how to do that, <laughs> uh, which involved the use of an otherwise illegal substance in a religious ceremony, stating that the federal government must show a compelling state interest in restricting uh, religious conduct. Did you say she works somewhere called Spirit Hub? I did not. Oh, okay. I, I want that to be a thing. Honestly, that must be the peyote kicking in. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, post-Smith, which was a case... I don't know. I, I'm just, I didn't write all of this down, so it's not very good. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I don't know what the Smith case was. Anyway. Um, they actually even used the RFRA... In the Burwellva's Hobby Lobby one. Yes, no, that was about. a huge component of it. Um, and um, but yeah, so basically, many members of the Native American church still had issues using peyote in these ceremonies, um, which actually led to some amendments to the act in 94. Um, and those state the use, possession, or transportation of peyote by an Indian for bona fide traditional ceremony purposes in connection with with the practice of a traditional Indian religion is lawful and shall not be prohibited by the United States or any state. No Indian shall be penalized or discriminated against on the basis of such use, possession, or transporta- transportation. Um, Which brings us to the pipeline. <laughs> right, right. Um, so who knows how that'll go. I, to me, the freedom of religion and the freedom to practice religion and the freedom of a government from interfering in your easy access to practice religion in theory is a great idea um because it does protect native americans yeah as like you don't think about it whenever i get mad about like uh they're using the freedom of religion to oppress me like the whole i there's gonna be court cases about can bakeries refuse service to gay couples i i know there are yeah absolutely like there was and it got struck down pretty quick but there's now especially with it's basically i think it's going to come down to the the the, the most important wording is going to be if it's a burden on the practice of their religion right and if a gay man buying a cake is really a burden on your religion maybe it's time to find a new religion right i, I also like hey fellow gay people get there's a lot of places for cakes yes yeah, for real I mean, you don't have to go like, and I'm not, I don't, this isn't victim blaming. It sounds like it is of like, you should be able to get a cake anywhere you want and you should. But for me personally, I'm like, I'm not dealing with the fucking, all of the bullshit. 
I'm and just I'll I will go get a cake from somewhere who wants to deal with me because it'll be easier in the long run. And as a cis straight white male, I'm staying the fuck out of it. Hey. <laughs> Um, so the last thing we need to touch on, because we talked about it at the top, and yeah. we'll have to do it real high level, I guess, um, is the Johnson Amendment, which is what is in the news. You're going to be hearing about it. Um, Trump wants to, I believe his... Eliminate. I believe his exact wording was totally destroy it. Totally destroy. Now, he, that's Arnold. No, no, Arnold's the apprentice now, which is even crazier. Um, okay, so the Johnson Amendment is a provision in the U.S. tax code. And it was introduced by Senator LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, who went on to become president. Um, So basically what it is, is uh, it affects nonprofit organizations with a 501c3 tax exemption, which are subject to absolute prohibitions on engaging in political activities and risk loss of tax exempt status if violated. So basically it says anything that's filing as 501c3 cannot contribute uh, to... Uh, political activities. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, they're subject to absolute prohibitions on engaging in political activities. Yeah, yeah. Like said. And um, so, bas- yeah, like if you're because fi- five hundred one c threes are nonprofit organizations. So it, basically, any and actually five hundred one three cs are the most common type of nonprofit for sure. Yeah, and I mean and this range from charitable foundations to universities, and then most importantly, churches. <laughs> Um, So organizations claiming tax-exempt status cannot collect contributions on behalf of political campaigns or make any statement for or against a particular candidate. Now, we all know you – I mean, they can talk about politics. Right. But they can't openly – Because there actually is um, provisions in that that they're allowed to have like some voter education activities. Uh, They can do voter registration and even get out the vote efforts. Uh, but they must be conducted in a nonpartisan manner. Exactly, and I mean, so it doesn't prohibit any type or like all types of political activity in churches. It's a fairly narrow law and scope. Right. It's it's they can't. Their pastors are free to preach on social and political issues of concern. They can issue guides. They can do things like that. Right. You just can't really contribute money to specific campaigns. Exactly. That's pretty much the big thing, and it's be a lot of it. Not even. The religious aspect, because 501c3s, like I said, that's not just churches. There's charitable foundations sure. and, and universities. Ronald McDonald House, stuff like that. A I large mean. part of that is a lot of their, all of their stuff is tax exempt. Sure. Um, so not only, like one of the big things is like, not only is it um, like, you know, like religious things endorsing a, a a a candidate or even backing a candidate with money, it, all of the contributions funneled through five hundred one three Cs would be tax deductible for donors, um, and five hundred one C threes are t- are exempt from reporting requirements. Or yeah, no, so churches they, churches are exempt from reporting. So they would have if they had huge political donors to the church in exchange for propping them up as a candidate, that would be a huge violation of that, and that's what we're trying to avoid right. us with the Johnson Amendment. Right. Um, also, uh, despite Trump's uh, promise to totally destroy it, only Congress can repeal a law, especially right. a tax law, so he can't just, you know, executive order it right. away. Um, um, so, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting because um, I mentioned that churches could get in trouble for violating the Johnson Amendment. No churches really have... Um, 
that they the IRS rarely moves to take away a church's tax exemption. Uh, only one of more than 2,000 Christian clergy deliberately challenging the law since 2008 had been audited, and none of them have been punished. Um, so, I mean, it's you know, it's just totally by the way, line. I just want to point out that there's so much surrounding this right now. But when it was introduced in 1954, the it was agreed to with unanimously zero debate. They were like, great. There was great no debate. They went. Yeah, they were like, that makes so much sense. So I just guess I want to say we're living in a time where nothing makes sense. I, I, and I, everything's upside down. And I wanted to bring up a, uh, a quick um, uh, little quotation that I, I read an article about um, a, on CNN, which I, you know, whatever, if you want to call it fake news, whatever you want to do. Um, Tony Perkins, uh, a Christian right leader, was on there uh, discussing the Johnson Amendment. And right off the bat, he claimed that the repeal of the Johnson Amendment would allow church leaders to speak out on political issues that are spiritual at their core, that's already allowed. Yeah, pastors no, routinely speak out It's literally money. About it's like literally that. about donating to campaigns. What pastors cannot do right now is say, good Christians will vote for Republican candidate X. That is that is what is not allowed. Um, and, you know... Uh, he, but you know what is allowed? Like, saying, oh, hey, here's Christian values and here's this candidate who happens to hold them. There's there's always like, there's superfluous so many ways loopholes. to do it. Yeah. It's fucking easy. Um, he, he had one quote that, that really was interesting to me. He said, uh, these issues predate government. The church predates government. And longstanding tradition in this country has been, until the 1950s when the Johnson Amendment was added, that pastors and churches can speak freely. I mean, this goes back to the Apostle Paul or Peter and John who said, look, you're not going to regulate what we're saying. We're accountable to go, or we're accountable to God, not some government bureaucrat. I believe in the freedom of the pulpit to speak what it declares biblical. So this is kind of scary rhetoric. I mean, it's basically saying that because religion has been around before government, it should take precedent over government, right. which is, it's scary, but... Um, you know, it's one of those things that I mean, if if it happens, it's not the first time that it's been challenged, um, right? But you I will, will see... say it actually was challenged fairly recently, um, and they actually already changed it a little bit. Um, there was a time in I don't oh actually. In, on February 2nd, just recently, after the meeting and President Trump said totally destroy it, Republican lawmakers actually introduced legislation that would allow all 501c3 organizations to support political candidates as long as any associated spending was minimal. Yeah, I mean, if, if churches can... So, basically, if... Okay, if your real problem, which I don't think it actually is, is you can't say all good Christians support this person... I don't think that's your real problem. You the lawmakers who got there on waves of uh, of Christian sentiment are afraid that they're gonna run out of money, but they know there's a lot of money in the churches that got them there, and they want it. There's always and money that's in the what collection plate. That's what they're upset about. It, Maybe not. Maybe not. And maybe all they really do want is to say is to stand up there and say, You should vote for this person. If that's all they want, then you fine. 
I don't honestly really care what you say at your church. I mean, I think, you know, it's one of those things that boils down because to... I think it still in, is up to the congregate, the individual members of the congregation to actually vote that way. They don't have to believe what the religious leader is saying. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll 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 I, uh, in in my segment with this sentiment that um, it was actually the very first time that I started to kind of have a fallout with my religion at a younger age. And it was during the 2000 election, and I specifically remember sitting at 4 o'clock mass with my dad, and they were talking about um, the election coming up. And uh, at the time, my dad was a union worker uh, before he retired, so typically voted Democrat because they're typically more pro-trade. And our pastor more or less said that if you didn't vote for Bush, you were voting for abortion, which was a really deep conflict for my dad. And I remember hearing a lot of conversations between him and my mom, and it really kind of was a struggle for him. You know, do you vote in the best interest of your family, or do you vote for your morals and principles, but against what would help you as a wage earner? And I think that at its core, you, you'll always see churches and uh, and institutions that have strong beliefs attempting to garner and spread those beliefs but it shouldn't be done as a detriment to your day-to-day life. And I think when you see influence pouring in and the, the possibility that they could have unlimited resources to support candidates for whichever reason, that, that sets a strange and, right. and upsetting that's precedent. A, that's upsetting. So that's I, the upsetting part of... And that's all and, very and gloom and doom. The, it's not right. necessarily going to be like that, but history has proven otherwise and sometimes in those situations when they've been given the opportunity. You know, I mean... When you see things like the church and state married in oligarchies or dictatorships or war-torn countries, you get oligarchies or dictatorships or war-torn countries. You know, it's kind of a quid pro quo as far as that goes. Right. Um, yeah. So, okay, cool. Good Good note to end on. Thanks. Happy, yeah. upbeat, and light. Yeah. So, uh, as always... Um, Join us next week when we talk about the death penalty. <laughs> As always, I'm Jason. I'm Jack, as always, until that truth becomes alternate as well. And thank you very much for listening. Uh, Be sure to review, like, share, tell your friends, uh, give good reviews. Put put out a messenger pigeon about it. Uh, And if Uh, the Johnson Amendment is repealed, then we will be claiming 5013C status very soon. Yeah, we'll... Oh, God. I'm going to claim 501C3. I'm going to claim um, um, that I... Uh, and sole proprietorship i'm gonna i'm gonna just get all the laws on my side and i will reap the benefits as well i don't know i that wasn't a good sign off it wasn't do you want to try another one no why 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 should this is the truth right i don't know do we want to prevent present an alternative fact of how the sign off really goes no